0: Welcome to Creative on Purpose Live. These conversations are about flying higher and endeavors that make a difference. Do the work you're meant to do now. It's time to be creative on purpose. Are you ready? Let's go. I'm your host, Scott Perry, author of Endeavor and chief difference maker at Creative on Purpose. You can learn more about me and my work and grab a free copy of the Creative on Purpose handbook at creativeonpurpose.com. Now, let's meet today's guest. Adam Lowenstein, welcome to the broadcast. Please tell our viewers who you are what you're up to these days and where can they go to learn more about you and your work?
1: Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Scott. I'm really excited to be on with you. Um, So I'm Adam Lowenstein. Uh, I'm a writer. Uh, I'm a recovering political staffer uh, who spent about eight years working in politics in the U.S. before I moved to London, where I am now, mostly working in the House and Senate, um, but a little bit back home in my home state of Colorado. Um, I'm a partner to an amazing woman named Erin, um, who my book is dedicated to. And this book, uh, Reframe the Day, that I have right here is the reason that I'm here. I'm also the author of Reframe the Day, Embracing the Craft of Life uh, One Day at a Time, which is basically 10 ideas and or 10 practices and one idea. The one idea is that anybody can nudge their life in a more fulfilling direction, and the 10 practices are the 10 ways for doing so, which I'm sure we'll get into in a minute here. Uh, you can learn more about me at my website, AdamL.blog.
0: Fantastic, yeah, so it's a really dynamite book, and i is it a book that comes out of this uh, frame of recovering political uh, operative
1: <laughs> yeah, absolutely and in, a, in a kind of in a couple of different ways. I think there's no way that I would be the person I am today having not spent the first um you know close to decade of my career working in politics, and so inevitably that has uh, that has shaped who I am as a person and how I see the world. Um, But it's also come out of politics in the sense that when I moved to the UK about two and a half years ago, I kept experiencing these fleeting moments of contentment and fulfillment and presence in a way that I never did when I was working in politics in the US. And so the the reason I wrote this book um, was to try to figure out where those moments were coming from. And it very much was not gonna be a book at the start. Originally, it was just an iPhone note to try to make sense of my thoughts. Like a lot of writers, I think I write to figure out what I think and to process the world around me. Mm -hmm. And that iPhone note turned into a series of blog posts. And then those blog posts became the book that has reframed the day. So while the book is not about politics, I think it's pretty much inextricable from that world, that crazy, crazy world.
0: Yeah. Well, it's interesting. uh, Most of the guests that come on to share whatever their creative endeavor is um, seem to have Found their way there by scratching a niche of their own, uh, mm-hmm. and then deciding that they, they would help others not repeat all the mistakes that they made. Right. <laughs> by sharing that in some sort of yeah. book form. And I love I love your process because it's very similar to the way I've written all of my books, which is an idea first gets unpacked and just random notes to myself and then a blog post and then mm-hmm. eventually after blog, you know, series of blog posts, you see a theme and you decide that you can cobble this together and expand on it to create, um, a, a book. And so that part is really fascinating. Are you, uh, were you a blogger before you decided to become an author and what, what's that practice look like?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. And I would say yes and no. Um, yes, in the sense that I was, once I left politics, when you're working in politics, you can't really write a whole lot under your own name. Um, Most of the writing that you do should be under your boss's name or the cause or the state or the Senator or the member of Congress who you're working for. Um, So I did a lot of writing for other people, um, but it wasn't really until I left politics that I started to try to figure out my own voice and be able to write under my own name with all the opportunities, but also the stress and anxiety that comes with publishing under your own name. There's a bit of a shield when you're publishing for somebody else that I don't have. At the same time, it's been enormously fulfilling to be writing for myself. And I I realized every time I start writing, I realize that I have stuff to say and stuff that I need to get out of here and Mm. onto the digital page, even if nobody else ever reads it, there's a lot of value in that process itself. Uh, So I did a lot of writing about politics and life um, on Medium and and elsewhere. And so the ideas in this book came from those thoughts. Um, And I didn't, like I said, I didn't plan on turning it into a book until I realized Just how much I had to say, and then there, as you know from having written one yourself, there's this whole other process—not just of figuring out the book world, but of trying to get your thoughts in such an order that they make sense after some 200 pages.
0: Yeah, I don't know what your experience is, but I'm curious because what I found uh, in writing um, any of the books that I've written, even the, the, the smallest handbooks, is that I've written quite a bit before I've. Uh, figured out what it is exactly that I'm writing about Mm -hmm. or I have gone in with the intention to write about something and then through the process of of writing and unpacking that idea discovered that actually that's not what I meant to write about at all Um, something new has availed itself and this is you know this is the book that wants to be written right now as opposed to the book that I wanted to write at the beginning is that uh, something that resonates with your experience with this book
1: That rings very true, both in individual articles or columns I've written or just writing a weekly newsletter or in the book itself. I think I write to make sense of my thoughts, but I also write to figure out to some degree what I believe. And, you know, if you can't convince yourself of what you're writing, then you're probably not going to be able to convince anyone else. But at the same time, you might discover things that you actually think or know or believe or want to explore. Um through this process of writing. And that's actually why one of the things that I talk about in the book, um, in a chapter, which is largely about consuming more meaningful content as opposed to just the news and the incoming that we are all subjected to day in and day out, especially right now. Uh, Mm -hmm. Toward the end of that chapter, I talk not just about writing, but about creating in general, uh, which is obviously a topic, very relevant to this, um, you know, to your work, to the show and to the work that you've done. Um, But because not only does it bring a sense of clarity to your own mind and help you figure out what you believe to your point earlier. Um, It also, there's, for whatever reason, human beings seem to find meaning and fulfillment in the act of crafting, whether it is writing or even just making a really well thought out Instagram story or something like cooking, or even sending in just an email to a colleague, the kind of thing that we do a million times a day, Uh, that just writing in that, I'll often find myself writing a long email deleting half of it, but I needed that first draft to figure out what I actually wanted to send. So there are all these little opportunities day in and day out. It doesn't have to be a book um, to figure out what we think and and process the world a little bit.
0: Yeah. So there's a lot of good, juicy stuff in in what you just shared. Before I dive into that, I'm just curious because I I know that your background is um, in speech writing in particular. Is that correct?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. That was my most recent role in politics.
0: So I'm just fascinated by this idea that, you know, speech writers write speeches in someone else's voice for someone else to to mm-hmm. read, or that a ghostwriter writes a book for another uh person and is trying to write in that voice. What what is that process like? And and it it just feels almost, you know, to to an outsider like me like that. Would almost require some sort of psychic break, or, <laughs> or, or at least um, warning signs of schizophrenia to, to kind of put yourself in that. You know, I think it must take a great deal of empathy to put yourself fully in somebody, someone else's not only shoes but in their head, uh, mm-hmm. and and to write in in the way you know that you're familiar with them uh, speaking. So, just yeah. I'm just interested. Uh, personally as to what that must be like.
1: Yeah, well, I could definitely get into this at length because I obviously spent a lot of time thinking about the weird aspects of being a speechwriter or just a writer for somebody else um, and how to do that job better. And I could go through a whole list of little hacks and things that I found useful because it's all about, like you said, about learning the voice of the person who you're speaking with. So you need to get to know them personally so you know the stories that they like to tell, the way they would or would not frame something in their own speaking and writing. Uh, you need to spend a lot of time with that person so you can just pick up the cadences of their voice. So when you're putting something in front of them and it's say a list of 10 items and they they would never speak like that, then you just over time, you figure out what works and what doesn't. So it's very much like any craft, it's, it's a process of trial and error. Um, I did realize that after a while, my former boss I could start to hear his voice in my head so to your point to your point about it being a little bit of a schizophrenic thing it I could hear it in a way that was actually useful for me um, not in a super creepy or unsettling way for the most part um, and when I got to that point I knew that I was probably had been listening and re-watching and spending enough time with him to the the different materials that he was speaking about that I was starting to pick up his, his the way he would Um, put sentences together and connect ideas and the cadence and the pace and syntax and little intangible things like that, that, you know, I could try to write them down, but it's, it's more a craft than anything else. Um, So it's one of the things he used to say to me was that in so many words, he didn't say this exactly, but it was sort of like, you know, you try this, you come out here and, and try to read this dense, never ending run on sentence that takes up half the page for the first time, having just looked at it five minutes ago. And I was always like, why don't you just read what I've written? And then now that I'm writing under my own name and doing some more speaking myself, I realize you know just how difficult that is. So I think if I were to go back into a role like that, I would probably be a lot better at it because I would have a lot more empathy for an understanding of what that process entails and how difficult it is to record a video on the first take, let alone the 65th take. Um, but like anything, it, it is a process of trial and error. And it's amazing how much you can absorb by just listening and just practicing. And it was very much the first job that I did where writing was not something that I just checked off the to-do list and then moved on to the next thing. I realized after, I don't know, six months in that job of speech writing specifically, that if I wanted to enjoy what I was doing and if I wanted to grow as a writer and a speechwriter. I needed to see it as a craft and not just a task to be checked off. And in so many ways, I'm grateful for having had that opportunity, but especially in that sense, because it really forced me to see writing as something that it, I can enjoy. It's always going to be hard, but because it's hard, that's not a reason not to do it. In fact, that's part of what makes the process more fulfilling.
0: Yeah. There's a one of my favorite authors who writes about um, in addition to fiction and, and nonfiction, but um, who writes about writing is Stephen Pressfield, and he mm-hmm. has a, a favorite um, quote from the Bhagavad Gita: um, "You are entitled to your labor. You are entitled to your labor, but not the fruits of your labor." And, and to me, that speaks to what you're speaking to in terms of mm-hmm. craft. It's like the craft, it's the the development and the practice of developing craft that is yeah. the actual reward, and not the end because the end result is something you ultimately don't control,
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, you know, what happens to it or, or how it lands, um, and so yeah. forth. But you've mentioned craft and you've mentioned creativity, and I, I'd love for you to, you know, and you, you said something really interesting about, um, you know, that human beings find meaning through creative endeavors. And, uh, what is creativity? You know, how, how would you define that for
1: yourself? Ooh, that's a tough question. So I'm going to pivot and then come back to that in one second, just because, you know, you mentioned Stephen Pressfield and his concept. I love what you said about that. And it, it relates to his another his of his concepts, which I'm sure you're familiar with is this idea of the resistance. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this notion that the resistance is that force that stops you from sitting down and doing what you most want to be doing and what you'll be most fulfilled by doing. Um, it's the thing that it's not even procrastination. It's just the thing that keeps you from sitting down and starting to write. And the resistance, in addition to being really annoying and frustrating, is also a really good guide to perhaps what you care most about, because whatever you are, the resistance is stopping you from doing is often the thing that you care most about doing. Um, So I think that relates to that question of, you know, how do you define productivity, or not productivity, creativity. And, you know, for me, it is it, it ties into that resistance, because I often find I could spend every minute from when I wake up until after I go to sleep consuming information and just taking on incoming. And for me, creating is as simple as stopping the incoming and starting to do some outgoing and switching to output instead. Um, so that could be the you know drafting and redrafting an email that I mentioned earlier, or doing some blogging, or taking a photo, or even just sending... A well thought out text message to a family member. Like these are all opportunities to create. And, you know, it could be arranging a bookshelf in a color coded way. There are all sorts of ways that you can change the way things are and you can create some outgoing in addition to, or perhaps even better, instead of just taking on incoming. And for me, it's always easier to do the incoming. And you got to do some incoming because, you know, at a certain point, You can't be creating all the time because, you know, you get ideas from things you read and people you talk to and just turning your brain off and letting all of that subconscious processing happen. So it's obviously a balance, but I could easily be too easily be doing just incoming all the time. And for me, creating is stopping that for a second and doing a little bit of outgoing.
0: Yeah. I think that's really well said. You know, creativity is the act of bringing something into the world that didn't exist until you Mm -hmm. brought it together. But in many ways there's not a whole lot new under the sun so oftentimes it's you know it's processing the information that we've taken in and then applying our own idiosyncratic you know perspective voice skills what have you and doing that with some mo you know specific motivation or intention in mind and I always think of creativity, Must it's always a collaborative effort, because even if you're not doing something for an audience, you know if you're making a sandwich, it's not maybe a, a creative act that deserves a, a mention in the New York Times, but you made something that didn't exist until you made it, and mm-hmm. you can decide to do that with intention and integrity and with some determined effort, or you can just, you know, slap some stuff and, you know, cram it down your throat. Right. Um, and it, it, I really like that idea that, um, you know, we find meaning through these things and we find meaning if we do the work in front of us meaningfully. And that can be mm-hmm. washing the dishes or having a conver- text conversation with your family to your point, or it can be, um, you know, something that that aspires to be, um, have a little bit more Wider uh, or deeper impact. Um, so, I would love to, with the time that we have left, uh, we haven't really gotten too deep into the book. So, share um, what's what do you feel is the arc? The, the 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 reader is you're trying to take the the journey that you're trying to take the reader on. What's the arc of their trajectory? Uh, what's you know where are they when they begin the book, and where where do you hope they are at the end of the book?
1: Yeah, that's a great question and I and so the core message in this book is that no matter who you are or what you do or what line of work you're in or where you live there's very little in anyone's life that is actually in our control and we can nudge our days in a more fulfilling direction and in turn build a more fulfilling life by focusing on the little things that we do control and the arc of this book is from the slightly more practical to the little bit more ethereal and philosophical But even by the time you get to the later chapters, which are a little bit more out there, it's very much just 10 practices is the way I think about it. And I emphasize the word practices because just like a meditation practice where the goal is not to get to a finish line and then you're finished and you don't have to meditate anymore. It's something you do for the rest of your life and you get satisfaction and fulfillment and you see progress from the act of doing that every day or every few days consistently indefinitely. And that's the same thing for some of the other practices that I talk about in the book, finding stillness or creating stillness, I should say, to make it a more of an active thing. Finding, you know, where you're finding time to think and to process and to turn off that incoming information we were talking about earlier. Um, things like thinking about death and mortality. It not only sounds morbid and depressing to a lot of people, but it also doesn't sound like something that you can practice. It's something to be avoided, um, at least in a lot of Western culture. And instead, I try to see that, I try to reframe it as a practice, as something that can not only um, is important to remember that all our our time here is limited, but by seeing that as a practice and reframing it from something morbid and depressing to something that can make us, remind us that we're alive, it can be very much a fulfilling practice and something that we do day in and day out. So the arc of this book, while it goes slightly from the the practical to the more philosophical, the, the core message in all of these chapters is the same which is that these are 10 ways that have worked for me not to transform my life overnight, not to find some secret productivity hack that has let me do it all because as someone who was obsessed for years with thinking that all I needed to do was find more time and then I would be able to do it all and I'd be happy and contented ever after, uh, I try to push back on that and say, I'm, you know, you're never gonna find that time. Why are we also obsessed with productivity and busyness? So whatever the, the message of the particular chapter is, the idea is that these things are not gonna transform our, our lives overnight, but what they're gonna do is start to nudge today in a slightly more fulfilling direction. And if we can do that, again, coming back to this idea of a meditation practice, if we can do that today and maybe tomorrow, maybe the day after that, over time, we can see really transformative changes um, in a way that are actually sustainable and meaningful and don't require us to uproot our lives and move halfway around the world and renounce everything else that we care about or that we enjoy.
0: Yeah, really, really interesting. I, I love what you were saying. We too, I think we too often conflate pro- productivity with progress. And we, what mm-hmm. we really want is to make progress in our lives and in the development of ourselves and the relationships that we have with, with others in the pursuit of Um, craft, whether that's the craft of, uh, you know, what we make a living at or just the craft of becoming a a more fulfilled human being experiencing greater equanimity and um, well-being. Um, And as you're sharing all this, I mean, my work, too, is influenced uh, by... Philosophy and and to a certain degree, uh, what some people might call spirituality, um, and I I hear hints of that in in what you're speaking to. Um, my particular angle is is stoicism, but I wonder if there's mm-hmm. a, a tradition that that is at least infused into the the way that you're or what what you have to share in the book.
1: Yeah, so I there are a lot of ideas throughout the book that are very much influenced by stoic philosophy and. Um, and Buddhist tradition as well. I think the way I look at it is that it's less of what I practice now and more about, for me, what I'm getting away from, which is worshiping at the altar of productivity and judging my own self-worth, how I feel at any given moment, based on how productive I've been at that time. And of course, we don't really have good ways for measuring productivity. Like you said, it's about progress over the long term. So instead of productivity, we we use busyness as a proxy. And that feeds back into what I was talking about earlier about this conviction that a lot of blogs and a lot of books um, and a lot of videos online promise us that all we're missing is more time to do more things and to work more and we'll be more fulfilled when we finally find that secret reservoir of time. So for a long time, I worshipped at that altar of productivity and self-improvement and obviously self-improvement and productivity can be good things, but when they become the end goal in themselves, as opposed to tools for whatever journey that you're on, then I think you can pretty quickly lose the plot as I did. And one of the things I talk about in the book is this fairly haphazard decision I made after four years of working in Washington, DC. I just started dating my partner, Aaron. um, And then I decided because I had all of a sudden this plan that I needed to move home to Colorado, and run for the state house of representatives in the next election cycle. And, you know, I could have stopped to think, why do I feel so compelled to do this? Why do I need to be working all the time and having all of these coffees and networking sessions to try to fulfill this fairly haphazard ambition that I just decided I would pursue Uh, then. But I didn't ask those questions because those were a lot harder. Instead, I saw all the work and the busyness and the self-improvement in the late nights and the early mornings and how tired I was and how little I slept. I saw those as the end goal in and of themselves instead of just tools for trying to get where I wanted to go. And if I had taken a step back to see, are these getting me where I want to go? I would have realized as I finally have now, after moving all the way to Colorado to try to fulfill this plan and then moving back to DC, um, they were not getting me where I wanted to go, that it was not a fulfilling way to live my life. And so I, I, the way I look at it right now is there's no one unifying philosophy that um, has completely transformed my life. But what has been most transformative is stepping away from you know being obsessed and worshiping this idea of productivity and a very self-indulgent notion of self-improvement and trying to think about it in a slightly less self-indulgent way and trying to take in lots of ideas from whatever I read and who I talk to and the, the content I consume and, and knitting it together in a way that I think is working for me so far. Uh, it's certainly more fulfilling than the approach I was taking a few years ago. And that's the journey that I try to convey in this book is stepping back from a, a life that was obsessed with work and seeing work as the purpose of life to one that is a little bit more about being present and fulfilled and seeing work and all the other stuff that we've talked about as, as tools for that journey.
0: Yeah. Well, regardless of tradition, uh, there's all of them weave in mindfulness, presence, mm-hmm. non-attachment, acceptance, um, resilience, and, and that sort of thing. So, um, again, not not many new, new ideas under the sun, just different perspectives right. and, and from different parts of the world. Well, Adam, it's been... Fantastic. Speaking to you, I'm really excited to dive into the book. Um, I do have one last question, which is the question I ask all my guests at the end of our time together. And that is, if you had just one tip or piece of advice to leave listeners with that would help them fly higher in the difference that they seek to make through their work, what would that be?
1: So I would say, first of all, thank you for having me on the show. This has been really fun. I wish we could keep going on this. I know there's a lot of commonalities and as I say in my day job, lots of synergies and things to talk about. So this has been really fun. I think what I would leave folks with is the the hope and the urge, and I'm saying this to myself really as much as anybody else, is cut yourself some slack. You don't have to be productive all the time. You don't need to be creating all the time. Um, You don't need to be on all the time. Um, I published a a new forward to the book uh, right as it was coming out, trying to make sense of what it was like to publish a book in the middle of the coronavirus crisis. And a lot of that was me saying, I have come up short, me realizing, and then saying, I have come up short on pretty much everything I talk about in this book and just reminding myself that this is a practice. So what I would say is if you're feeling the burnout coming on, even if you're not feeling the burnout coming on, if you're exhausted, overwhelmed, beating yourself up for not being productive all the time, even if you're not doing any of those things, cut yourself some slack anyways. And hopefully we can do that for ourselves and the people around us too.
0: Love it. Well, that's awesome. Well, thanks, everyone, for tuning in. Adam and I both appreciate you lending us some of your valuable time and attention, and we hope that today's broadcast motivates you to lean into an endeavor that matters with greater curiosity and courage. You can learn more about Adam. Once again, Adam, the website?
1: The website is adaml.blog, and you can find all of the stuff about the book, some other stuff I've written, all of the social links
0: is there, adaml.blog. Fantastic. And of course, it's always great to see you at creativeonpurpose.com as well. Now, go out and make a difference and keep flying higher. Adam Lowenstein, thanks so much for your time. Thanks for having me, Scott.